Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your co-host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. This season of Club Book looks and sounds a little different than our previous seasons. Due to COVID-19, we are bringing seasons to you virtually instead of our traditional live events hosted in libraries around the Twin Cities Metro. Our format will be a little different too. Events this season will consist of facilitated author discussions by some really great guest hosts. And will also include a Q&A section with questions submitted by our virtual audience. With that, I'll turn it over to our host for this evening's event. Enjoy. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Club Book with Maggie Shipstead. I am Wendy Webb, the Minnesota author responsible for eight best-selling novels of gothic suspense that may have scared some of you, and I'm so sorry for that. Uh, I'm proud to say that um, two of them won the Minnesota Book Award, and it's my distinct pleasure to be here tonight to talk with Maggie. Now, before I introduce her, though, um, I have a little bit of housekeeping to clean up. Allow me a moment to tell you a bit more about the unique series that is bringing her to us. Club Book is a program of MELSA, the Metropolitan Library Service Agency, made possible through Minnesota's Arts and Cult Cultural Heritage Fund. It's coordinated by Library Strategies, part of the Friends of the St. Paul Public Library. Dakota County Library is the co-organizer of this evening's talk. Thanks also to one of my favorite bookstores, Red Balloon Bookshop. Now for your featured event. Maggie Shipstead is the author behind Great Circle, one of the most anticipated, best reviewed, and best-selling fiction releases of 2021. Her modern masterpiece intertwines the stories of Marion Graves, an aviation daredevil patterned after Amelia Earhart, and a young Hollywood actress who attempts to adapt Marion's larger-than-life story for the big screen a century later. In a starred review, Kirkus raves whether Shipstead is creating scenes in the Prohibition-era American West, in wartime London, or on a Hollywood movie set, her thorough research allows for a uniquely immersive experience. Great Circle is also shaped in part by Maggie's globe-trotting work as a travel writer. The Today Show selected the novel as the May 2021 pick for the popular Read with Jenna book club, and the title put Maggie in contention for the hyper-competitive Booker Prize. Maggie's prior novels include her debut, Seating Arrangements, a satire about upper crust New England, in other words, rich people behaving badly at a wedding, and that book was the winner of the Los Angeles Times Book Prize. Now what's gonna happen here is that Maggie's gonna come on and give a short presentation, and then I'll jump on with questions, 
And then it'll be time for questions from you guys. And so how do you do that, you ask? You simply drop your questions in the comments thread here on Facebook, and our tech guy will route them to me. If you'd prefer to contribute a question a bit more anonymously, you can send them uh, privately to Club Book here on Facebook, or send an email to clubbookmn at gmail.com. So after that mouthful, let's all welcome Maggie Shipstead. Hi, Wendy. Hi. It's so good to Thanks have you here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, oh, it's exciting. I'm delighted. Um, so yeah, I guess I take it from here for a few minutes. I, and so then you've, got a, you've got something special to show us. You guys, she's going to show us a cool video. Yes, that's it. Um, I'm going to show you guys a video and then some slides, kind of do an overview. I'll try not to talk too much because I know we're going to get to them in the questions. So here we go. I'm going to share my screen. And it's a short video I made with my publisher right when Great Circle comes out. And it's a little bit of an explanation of the book and also um, some images from my travels. When I started writing Great Circle, I spent two months in Missoula, Montana, where my main character, a pilot named Marion Graves, grows up. In 1950, Marion vanishes while attempting to fly around the world north-south. I set out to find a way to see the polar regions for myself. Interwoven with Marion's story is that of a modern movie star named Hadley Baxter, who is playing Marion in a movie about her life. Like Hadley, I live in Los Angeles. Great Circle is about scale and about freedom, and it's about flight. I'm not a pilot, but while I was writing, I sought out any opportunity to fly on vintage aircraft and gliders and helicopters and planes suited to extreme environments. I'm a big proponent of window seats. This book is a human story, but it's also meant as a love letter to the planet. Mostly through assignments for magazines, I've had the privilege of seeing places like the remote Ross Sea region of Antarctica, Alaska, the Cook Islands, Greenland, the Canadian High Arctic, the New Zealand Subantarctic, and the Himalaya. The end result is that I've become addicted to the feeling of awe. I wanted to give that same hunger to Marion, but as she points out in the book, there's too much of the world and too little of life. As a reader, I'm always hoping to be transported, especially now. I hope Great Circle takes you somewhere far away and unexpected. So yeah, that's just a little introduction. Um, like I said, I know we're gonna get to a lot in our conversation. People have already kindly sent in some questions. Um, so I just would kind of start with some background. I grew up in Southern California, although my parents moved there from Minneapolis um, shortly before I was born. Um, yeah, mm -hmm. they still talk about how cold it was, even though they've been in <laughs> California for almost 40 years. Um, I went to Harvard for my undergrad, uh, and I studied English literature. I didn't know what I wanted to do with myself. Um, you know, people suggest you become a lawyer if you're verbal. That wasn't for me. Sort of on a whim, I applied to the Iowa Writers Workshop. And so I had one year between college and going to grad school for fiction, which is where I became sort of more serious about it, even though a career seemed uh, still highly unlikely. 
Um, my first book was Seating Arrangements. It was published in 2012. It started as a short story I wrote at Iowa and that um, I couldn't quite make work. And my teacher said, oh, maybe it should be a novella. And I know now that's something you just say, but the time I took it really seriously. So I expanded it. Um, and then I was at Stanford for two years on a writing fellowship. And I wrote a short story about a retired ballet dancer that then also sort of semi-accidentally expanded into my second novel, Astonish Me. Um, and so in between those two books, uh, after Seating Arrangements had come out and Astonish Me was sort of on its way out, uh, I was working on a different project that just kind of died on me. At the time, I was traveling in New Zealand and I got to the airport in Auckland and was feeling a little sorry for myself. Um, you know, what am I going to write? When you don't have an idea, it feels like you'll never have another idea mm -hmm. again. And then I saw the statue of Jean Batten, who uh, was a pilot from New Zealand, who was the first person to fly from mm -hmm. England to New Zealand in 1936 solo. Um, and I thought, oh, I'll write a book about an aviatrix, problem solved. And so I didn't start working on it for another two years, but that kind of went into my, my brain as what I was going to do. Um, one of the first things, I can't plot out a book in advance, but going into this book, I did know that I wanted my pilot, Marion Graves, to fly warplanes during World War II, which would have been possible either in the US or the UK. And I knew she would disappear flying around the world north-south, so her route was one of the first things I figured out. And that kind of made it clear to me that I wanted to see um, most or all of the places she went, including the polar regions, which I'd never been to. Um, this is a very research heavy project. I'm sure we'll talk more about that. I did most of it in books. Um, this is just a sort of cross section of, of the books I accumulated over the period I was writing. Um, I also took, I went to the archives at Stanford, the Hoover Institution, um, where they had papers uh, belonging to a group of American women who had gone to the UK during the war and flew in a civilian organization called the Air Transport Auxiliary. And so I read hundreds of pages of these sort of onion skin letters home from the war. Um, and they had personal photos and, and stuff from later on in life. It was really fascinating. Uh, I also, during the time I was writing Great Circle, which was from fall 2014 and then was published in May 2021, a nice seven-year block or almost seven-year block, um, starting about early 2015, I started writing for travel magazines. And so I would pitch stories to places where I wanted to go that would help the book. And I also sort of incidentally went to some places that I then used in the book. Um, this is just a smattering of, of trips I took. I think I've taken 21 trips for magazines now. Um, and those trips, this was from an assignment for Condé Nast Traveler to the Canadian High Arctic. And um, as much as I could, I would I would go in sort of unusual aircraft and, and try to connect with my character, my character's life. And I met people who sort of lived in these wilderness spaces and had this expertise I couldn't imagine and this hunger to see these places, um, which really informed Marion as I, during the years I was writing. Um, and so this was a twin engine turbo otter we took from a sort of tented lodge uh, way, way, way up north over to this island where there were some historic graves. And then going back, we the cloud kept going, getting lower and lower. So we flew at about 140 feet over the Northwest Passage um, and then took three tries to land. So I got, I got a little taste of, of adventurous flying. Um, also through uh, sort of romantic circumstances, I went to Antarctica twice, um, once for a magazine, once with someone I was dating who was an expedition leader. And that first trip with him was to the Ross Ice Shelf down here um, from New Zealand, which is, you go really, really, really far south. Most people go to the Antarctic Peninsula up here. 
um, and you don't usually cross the Antarctic Circle, which is 66 degrees, and we went to 78 degrees. Um, it's extremely remote. It's a really severe climate, um, but it was oh, it was fascinating. And this is an example of the seas you encounter going over there. And people complain about the Drake Passage from South America, but that's just one day. This was mm, 10 days, including stops at islands. Um, these are some shots of that part of Antarctica. These are the Trans-Antarctic Mountains, uh, Mount Erebus. These are molting emperor penguins and um, Robert Falcon Scott's uh, historic hut. And this is the Rasai Shelf itself, which figures in the Great Circle. This is the place from where Marion disappears. Um, and it's a floating platform of ice that's sort of been pushed down off the continent. And it's about the size of France. Um, so you just sort of chug along this ice edge for days. And this is probably about 40 or 50 feet high. Uh, this is the finished draft, of the first finished draft of the book. It took me three years and three months to write, and it was 980 pages long, which is a little too long. Um, <laughs> I'm sure we'll talk more about the editorial process, but a lot of it had to do with cutting. Um, that's a beer can for scale. Uh, and yeah, so I will stop sharing screen and we can go into our conversation. Okay, well, that video was really cool. So thank you for sharing okay. that. Um, you covered some of my just initial basic questions, but what I'm getting from that video is, were you ever scared on those little planes? And especially because, you know, you knew that Marion was going to go missing. Um, and there you are. Did you ever kind of feel like, I know I would, I'd feel like, um. <laughs> yeah, the, the incident I described where we, we were flying so low, um, I found it unnerving. Nobody else on the plane was bothered. I could tell the pilot was concentrating really hard. And, and lots of pilots who do that sort of extreme um, polar flying, they spend the northern summer in the Arctic and they spend the southern summer in Antarctica. And so he was super, super experienced. And um, so we're flying solo. It looked like you were on a ship. And then there was a crosswind. And so he kept you know, trying to land, pulling up, circling around. And then when he finally landed, he turned around and he goes, I haven't worked that hard in a long time. And I was oh, sort of wow. retroactively chill, yeah, chilled by it. I mean, in some ways I find smaller planes almost less alarming because you can usually see the pilot and everything that the plane does is connected to something they're doing. I think when you're on a passenger jet, you know, you're looking out the side and it just seems random what's happening. And, and so I, I always feel a little more engaged in the process, but yeah, I can see that. It's like, there's no control when you're on, you know, just a Delta Airlines flight. But mm -hmm. on a smaller plane, um, I can see that. So did you, when you went there, had you already written that part of the book? Or did you go there kind of thinking in your head, you know, that's maybe what's going to happen. And then you got inspired. Like, what, what was the chicken and what was the egg there? In, uh, in Antarctica or the Arctic? Yeah. Or both, I guess. Um, uh, I had not written that part. Um, her actual flight, you know, falls really late in the book. Although the way I initially tried to write it, I was writing her around the world flight sort of interstitially. Um, so I always knew that that would be her route. But yeah, I really didn't write those sections until I went. Um, and then, you know, even going to Antarctica twice, um, and I went the first time in 20, very early 2016, um, and then or actually late 2015. And then the second time was 2018, I think. 
um, when I had written more, I had written a lot of it by then, or I, I had a full draft. Um, but, you know, also Marianne and Marianne's flight, she crosses the interior of Antarctica, and it's prohibitively expensive to get there. You kind of can as a tourist, but, you know, it's really tough. But I really wanted to see that sort of visual of the expanse of ice. Um, and so what I did was I pitched a story uh, to Outside Magazine about the National Guard pilots who fly in Antarctica and uh, in their northern summer, they train in Greenland. Oh. And so I flew in the back of a four engine cargo plane from upstate New York to Greenland and we landed on the, the Greenland ice cap. And so I got like what was you know visually indistinguishable from Antarctica standing on the, the snow at the Dome of Sky. And it, it was important, even though it's like just a flash in the book really. Oh, wow. So how did Hadley come into play? So you had Marion, you know, Marion was kind of the, the inspiration, um, Jean Batten. Um, and then how did you decide, you know, to, to do this, you know, with uh, a century apart, the two women? Yeah, it was sort of an accident. So I really got serious about writing the book in fall of 2014, which was when I moved to LA. Um, I had spent two months before that in Missoula, but at that time I thought I would send, set it in Nebraska. And it was only after I left Missoula that I was like, oh, maybe I'll set it in Missoula. So I had to make a return <laughs> trip later. But um, yeah, I just settled in LA and um, I one day, and my, lots of my friends work in Hollywood, obviously it's a very one industry town, and I just sat down one day and wrote the section um, in the book, for those who have read it, where Hadley, the movie star, leaves a club, and she's sort of publicly cheating on her boyfriend, who's her co-star in sort of a Twilight-esque mm. series. And it, on the surface, it had nothing to do with what I'd started writing with this pilot. I'd written the early sections of early chapters about Marion, which starts with the ship launch in Glasgow, all these things. Um, but for me, I just felt like there was this missing, somehow this, this first person movie star voice that had no obvious connection was the missing piece. And I think some of it was tonal. It let me kind of bring this kind of squeeze of lemon into it. Um, and then the way it played out was, was even more important. I think it became this lens on how much of a life is lost because the reader has this really, you know, detailed, intimate look at Marion's life. And then Hadley is in the position of trying to reconstruct it from these sort of scattered clues left behind 70 years later. Um, and it's this game of telephone. It's like Marion leaves behind her logbook from her flight. Somebody makes a novel out of that. They're making a movie out of the novel. Um, and it's so obvious that they're getting everything wrong, you know, to varying mm -hmm. degrees. And, and so that became sort of Hadley's function. But I would say that was sort of bringing the two stories together was probably the most difficult part of writing it, which is saying something because it was all a nightmare. It was all really, really <laughs> difficult. <laughs> so did you write them um, as we read them in the book or did you write Marion's story and then Hadley's story and somehow weave them? No, I wrote them at the same time or alternating, um, although there's a lot less of Hadley. And Hadley, Marion's story pretty much stuck. I mean, I, I made changes and there was kind of one big change that happened once uh, I had sold it to my publisher and was in edits. But for the most part, her story was pretty much from the beginning the way it is now. Whereas Hadley's, I I'd had to take a couple different runs at. Like I had a version that was sort of like, Hadley and Redwood, the movie producer in the archives of the New York Public <laughs> Library, like digging through boxes and, you know, different, I, different sort of um, takes on that. So yeah, that took a lot of adjusting as I went. And so when you were doing the research on um, female pilots back in the day, was there ever a moment where you got into it and you were just so into it and you thought, 
I don't know if this is going to work. Was there ever that doubt? Oh God. Yeah. I mean, every day, the book in general, like I, I was two years into writing the first draft and there's one day where I kind of realized like I'd written more than 400 pages. Um, I'd written that as seating arrangements was the longer of my two books. I'd already written the seating arrangements and I, I didn't know, you know, where the plot was going, but I knew pretty clearly I wasn't halfway through. And I was like, I don't know if I can do this. Like, I don't know if I can keep going just because of all the research involved and because I didn't know what I needed to know, I just had to do it as I went. And so it's always sort of this two steps forward, one step back feeling. Um, and yeah, I just felt completely overwhelmed by the thought that I had to write as much again and that it would, I could tell it would be around how long it was, about over 900 pages. Um, have any moments of, um like losing interest, you know, like, right, it, 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 you know, did you ever kind of think, ah, I'm no, just asking you know that, personal experience. Yeah, no, I've written I know something, that feeling. You know, get halfway through and then it's like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I've had that feeling too, usually more around the hundred page mark. So I was well past that. I mean, fortunately, I always felt committed to the project. I always believed in the project. But yeah, that, that kind of dark day where I realized I wasn't halfway through, I had to really recalibrate and I had to go, you know, I just have to focus on what I can do in one day and not think about the whole thing and just incrementally keep marching forward and eventually I'll get there. But I think if I'd known at the beginning what I was getting into, I don't know if I could have wrapped my head around it. I wrote seating arrangements in eight months. I wrote Astonish yeah. Me in five months. And I was like, I just toss off these novels, no big <laughs> deal. And then you know, it turned out no. So, so yeah, fortunately I never lost interest, but also because it's such kind of a, there's so many tangents and threads in the book, I was able to sort of get interested in different things yeah. and then incorporate them. So it, it did sort of renew my interest as I went. I, you know, I was going to ask you about that because I noticed that when I was reading it, um, in some of my books, I, and I don't outline either. And so uh, sometimes I find myself like veering off and telling and just getting into like, a storytelling mode like here's what happened a hundred years ago mm. and I noticed that you have that in your book and d does that come from you not following a rigid outline and just getting inspired and I'm thinking mostly of that story about the Native American woman uh, who you know kind of poses as a man and did you just kind of get inspired and veer down that road or did you know that was coming at all? No, so uh, sitting in the water grizzly, um, who we would call transgender now, though they didn't have a term for it then, was a real person. Um, and I came across him uh, when I was researching something about Montana, and he sort of like pops in and out of different explorers' notebooks. And what was really interesting to me was that they were sort of not scandalized. Like he first emerged as a as a girl and married a member of David Thompson's um, retinue, and that sort of went horribly awry. And he vanished, and then reappeared, you know, a couple of years later with a wife, and suddenly presenting as a man. And the explorers were just kind of like, "Huh?" Like I think <laughs> just being a native person, he already seemed so other to them that they just weren't really bothered by this this change. And so I thought it was really interesting. And I, I wrote that section there, these sections, for those who haven't read, there are these sections in the book called Incomplete Histories. And sometimes they'll sort of zip through geological time and, and sometimes they'll zip through people's lives. And um, 
and but so I wrote it, but I didn't know what function it would play, and I won't spoil it. But um, then when I was writing the end of the book, suddenly I sort of saw, you know, how I could use that or, or what purpose that that character in some ways had served. That's so beautiful how that happens. So what made you want to kind of have Marion um, be sort of outside gender norms for the time? Um, is that because, you know, being a pilot back in the day was a man's job, quote unquote? Yeah, I mean, I think Marion um, certainly considered herself a woman, but, um, you know, some of it came from sort of working backwards from this idea of this pilot disappearing in 1950. And then I had to go, well, what kind of person would she be? And what sort of upbringing would she have had? And I sort of, especially once I decided to set her childhood in Missoula, I sort of thought, well, you know, here's someone who's raised by this sort of, you know, semi-interested, dissolute uncle who's not really into setting any boundaries. And um, you know, if, when she's a child, she's this total free range child. She's feral. It sort of doesn't occur to her that there are any limitations on her. Um, she thinks she can go and do where, whatever she wants and where, go wherever. Um, and so I think that set up the character to be, um, a little bit more opportunistic in some ways with gender. Like she's, you know, when she realizes she wants to fly, but she needs to make money to pay for flying mm -hmm. lessons, she realizes realizes she's more likely to be able to get a little job if she's a boy and so she dresses as a boy and then you know different times in her life um it's just more convenient to be inconspicuous which is sort of takes the form of, of appearing in some ways as a man so yeah it sort of evolved organically i certainly didn't go into it with like an agenda about um you know writing a character with sort of fluid gender and, and sexuality so I'm getting a couple of questions in the chat here. One is um, with all the um, travel writing that you've done, do you have any advice to those of us who would love to do that? Um, yeah. <laughs> for, for actually writing for a magazine? Yeah. I really don't. I mean, it's, it's really challenging to get into it. I got into it semi-randomly. I'd already published two books. Um, and my second book, like I mentioned, was about ballet. And so an editor at Condé Nast Traveler, who's actually Hanya Yanagihara, the novelist, um, approached me and asked if I would write a profile about a dancer who lived between New York and Moscow. And I, no travel was involved. I just profiled him. I said, sure. And then I asked if I could pitch stories. Um, and kind of, I knew someone who was an editor at Travel and Leisure around the same time, and she assigned me a Hawaii story. And I did the same thing. Can I pitch? Um, I mean, I think people get into it because they're already established writers or because they literally work at a travel magazine and are an editor or they've dedicated their lives to travel writing. Um, and for people who are other kinds of writers like myself, it, it's also, it's um, surprisingly really hard. <laughs> I mean, it sort of seems like, oh, you take a trip, you write it up, but it's it's so hard to condense the experience. And so I know sometimes people do one story and then it's kind of like, it's not for them for whatever reason. Um, but, you know, I a lot of people write travel blogs or Instagram. Um, and if you're really good at it and you develop a following, you can get free travel that way. Um, but <laughs> yeah, as far as like pitching the magazines, it's it you kind of need to be established either as a writer of a different kind or a travel writer. So another question that came through is with all the research you did, did you uncover anything that didn't make it into the book, but you're kind of holding in your back pocket to maybe put in another book? 
No, I mean, I certainly had to cut things um, that I thought were interesting. Um, I had a whole, these incomplete history sections, I had a whole one about Antarctica that sort of started in prehistory. But the way the book is paginated, you know, once it's typeset, it probably came 500 pages into the book. And my editor was like, nobody who's just read <laughs> 500 pages wants to see the sentence like 200 million years ago in Antarctica. And I thought she was right, although it, it is kind of sad for me that that, that was gone. Um, I had a, some other little riffs um, that I thought were interesting, but had nothing to do with anything like... Um, uh in a different incomplete history there was this the uh coelacanth the sort of prehistoric fish that has lobed feet was thought to be extinct you know and then somebody hauled it out of the ocean in south africa in the 30s and so this female biologist sort of made this discovery at the exact same time um a physicist a, a woman who had fled from uh, nazi germany to sweden was discovering nuclear fission and this happened simultaneously and something about the sort of priests like this dive into the past and then this look at the future happening at the same time was really attractive oh, to me wow. but like, oh, that's really again cool. my my editor was like no <laughs> so <laughs> you know I, I cut i think about 230 pages and edits and most of it was small pervasive cuts um and so little things like that you know just cutting a word or sentence or paragraph if you have 980 pages to work on that all adds up so absolutely so um, somebody else wants to know, and this was on my list too, how did you find out you were in the running for the Booker Prize? And were you just like drinking champagne all day or <laughs> how did that go? You know, it really wasn't on my radar um, at all. And I um, I got, I woke up and, and, and of course being in LA versus London time zone wise, it's the communication often doesn't work out. So I woke up and I, I think I had a, like a bunch of missed calls from a London number as my editor trying to call me. Um, and then she always just gets frustrated and sends an email instead. <laughs> so, so I learned uh, by email, but I knew about both the long list and the short list a week and a half or two weeks before the public announcements. So they're in both, it seems to be the way they do things there. And uh, so there's a period where it's kind of, um, our little secret. I think, yeah, it was it was thrilling, of course. I can't remember what I did the day of the long list. Um, the short list, I was in Michigan with my extended family and there was some champagne, yeah. <laughs> um, and it's also, you know, it's one of those things where it's, it's such an amazing bolt of lightning and such a human process. Like people are choosing these books and these prizes and just what books get chosen depend on who's the who are the judges that year. Um, but it, there's also an element of from going from the long list to the short list. I'm sure you know, it's just like yeah. this, not only a thrill, but like a sense of relief. Cause you're like, oh good, I don't have to be disappointed <laughs> that I'm not <laughs> on it or that I don't get to go and, and do the whole thing in, in London. Oh, exactly. Um, somebody else wants to know, would you revisit um, uh, the, the time period, Marion's time period again in your writing career and were there any parts of Great Circle that, well, now you just answered that question that got cut out, yes. Um, but what about the time period? Would you ever go back to, you know, the 30s? Um, I mean, maybe. I never really had, I guess, I guess my book Astonish Me has some period stuff, but it's, it's mostly in the 70s. Um, I don't know. I mean, nothing, I haven't 
thought of another idea and I'm pretty purposeful about doing something different every time. So the the book I'm working on or just starting now is is more contemporary, partly because I, I don't want to do another big epic right now. I want to contain it a little bit. I don't need it to take six and a half years. Um, so I don't know. I mean, anything's possible. I, I wouldn't mind revisiting the period, although it would be through a different, you know, story. Um, one thing I thought of when they asked, you know, what actually got cut, the only big chunk that we cut was a plotline for Jamie, Marion's brother, where he joins this community in Canada called the Dukabors, and they're basically Russian Quakers. Um, oh, Tolstoy yeah. paid for them to emigrate um, to Canada in the, the 19th century. And they lived in these sort of communal um, villages. They All their prayer was through singing. They're vegetarians, they're pacifists. Um, they didn't use like a, a physical scripture of any kind. Uh, really, really interesting. And they would stage these nude protest marches whenever <laughs> the Canadian government wanted them to like send their kids to school or have deeds of property ownership. They were just like, no. And they, they still exist. They're really, um, really And the government was so like, I no, have... anything but that. Anything but that. Right. <laughs> yeah. And so I, I sent Jamie to a Dukabor community. And it was, again, kind of one just like weird thing too many or unusual thing too many. And so I cut that, which took out about 50 pages. But then, of course, I had to fill the gap. So my net gain was only like 20 pages or something. <laughs> Oh, awesome. All right. Let me look at some of these. Oh, okay. I wanted to talk to you about the fact that your three books couldn't be more different. First, the, you know, the Waspy family and seating arrangements, then the ballet, now this. What makes you want to um, inhabit just totally different worlds? Because as a writer, you, you know, you have to live there until, until you're done. Yeah, I mean, to me, that's part of the appeal. <clears throat> like, I don't know, so much about being a novelist is not fun at all. <laughs> and so I feel like you have to seize your fun where you can find it. And, and so when something really captures my attention, I, I think it's a, I like the opportunity to really delve into it and, and spend time with it. I mean, I, like I've said, this was more time than I planned on spending with aviation. Um, but yeah, and I, I think too, I like to, um, I just like to try different things. Like I have a short story collection coming out next month and in some ways looking back on those stories, which I wrote between 2007 and 2017, um, you know, it was, it was like a laboratory or how I was learning to write. So, um, yeah, it's, it is intentional. I think that, that my stories, uh, or my books have been so different and it's also just a product of life. You know, like when I wrote seating arrangements, I, I wrote the short story my second year at Iowa, so I was 24, and like I'd had a really waspy college boyfriend, <laughs> and so sort of like about this like slice of a subculture I'd sort of experienced tangentially. Um, and then this book was coming during Great Circle was coming during a period when I was thinking a lot about what does it mean to like be a woman sort of alone in the world and, and how do you make a life and what does freedom mean to me and especially as I started to travel more it, the writing of the book itself kind of changed my life when you start a book any any book do you have your care I know you don't outline but do you have your characters um kind of planned out did you know what Marion was going to be until you started writing her and kind of same with Hadley um, and I also love, you know, your other characters are so interesting. I love the beginning with, you know, the, sh the ship captain 
and set in that time period. I just got a Titanic vibe out of that. And um, so do you, do you have that in your mind or when you're on the page, does it just, is it just created? I mean, sometimes it is, especially with minor characters. Um, I can kind of just go if I have like a little bit of a feel. With a character like Marion, I mean, I don't think I had a plan for her, certainly not for um, like Caleb. Um, for those who haven't read, this is Marion and her brother's childhood friend who sort of was part of her life throughout. And so he really evolved. Um, yeah, Marion, I think I had a gut instinct for it. And that first section of the book, which is in her voice, um, just from the logbook right before she takes off from Antarctica, that was the first thing I wrote. And so just writing that in her voice also gave me a strong sense of who she was. And yeah, I need to know, I do need to have a sense, like the project I've started working on now, which I'm not very far into, I, I kind of a few of the characters fell into place and then I was starting a chapter from the point of view of a character I just couldn't decide and some of it was like too many possibilities for who she should be or what she does with her time and I had I had to commit and really think about it before I could get anywhere and it stalled me out for a while like a couple months I was like what is this and um yeah I, I I don't know if that happens to you too there's like the difference between not having an idea and having too many ideas is yeah. almost like weirdly <laughs> indistinguishable it does the same thing to you do you uh, do you just write all the way through or do you go back like what I do is I just start at the beginning and then I I write however long and then the next time I pick it up again I read that over and then mm -hmm. think okay this really sucks or it's really good or whatever and then I go on, um, but I'm not one that like writes a huge first draft and then goes back. So how do you do mm. that? What is your process there? Well, so when you go back and read like what you wrote the day before, do you then tinker with it or do you leave it alone? I sort of leave it alone. I read it oh, and wow. it, usually I, usually I, I think it's okay. And, mm -hmm. and then I can, and then I'll go on, but I don't think yeah, I've ever I cut anything out. Like, a scene oh, wow. or anything. Um, oh my gosh. But again, I haven't written an epic. So task. Yeah. I mean, uh, I don't do like a really messy first draft. Like I know people will write people longhand do. and a series of legal pads and they just don't look at what they've written. I will go back and read what I've written and tinker with it. And so, I mean, the ups the upside is that by the time I'm done with the first draft, it's never really a real first draft. It's pretty polished. I mean, then I, I do have to do more, but it's it's not like a total mess. Whereas, you know, um, so did I, was there another half yeah. question? No, that, um, <laughs> that, was and it. that okay. leads me to ask, do you have um, a group of people that you give your draft to for opinion? Or is if it's right to you, it's right. Yeah, I mean, I do miss this about being in workshops. I was in, you know, two years at Iowa and then two years at Stanford. And for short stories, especially, I found the sort of cacophony of opinion really helpful. I only tried to workshop part of a novel once and I thought it was a nightmare because it was like, you're just giving people a fragment. So I really don't have readers. Um, I read a first draft and give it to my agent. So my agent waited for three 
more than three years. And then she took a month to read it. And she and I, we spent like eight hours on the phone over four days talking it through. And then I, I spent nine months revising it. And then we sent it to my editor. So by the time I sold it, you know, like two people had written it. But I now live with my boyfriend, who's a TV writer. And so with this book I'm, I'm starting now, I just kind of needed to ask some questions. So I let him read these like 60 pages I'd written and then quizzed him on it and made it very clear what feedback I wanted and what feedback I didn't. And so that that was helpful. So I think he might be drafted into the role of early reader. Oh, that's awesome. So yeah, some agents are really good uh, readers and editors and then others just aren't. So it sounds like you've got a really good yeah. agent. And then the process, yes. uh, um, so it took a while from your second book to your third. Did you have to like, did your agent have to then go and get a new publisher or did you have your publisher just on tap waiting for your manuscript? Um, we, I've been with the same editor and publisher for all three books. I, I was gonna say when I went, yeah, she, um, my agent, Rebecca, I met at my second year at Iowa um, and she got, she was coming, she goes there, you know, occasionally like a lot of, agents do or go to other MFA programs just to meet students and I would never have gone to meet with her because I barely had one finished short story and the program um, administrator called me and she was like do you have a car and I was like yeah and she goes do you have an agent I said no and she said okay go pick this woman up at the airport so we just got along she was the only agent I ever met with so it's kind of like marrying the person you go on a, the first person you go on a date with right and so you know we've now worked together for 14 years and she's a really close friend um and yeah she is thank goodness she's a good reader and editor um but yeah so uh my editor is Jordan Pavlin at Knopf and and she did my first two books and then um I wasn't on contract for this book. So no one was really pressuring me, but I also had no guarantee, you know, it would work or be published, especially given how long it was. So I technically sold it on a partial, but it was a 500 page partial. <laughs> and she was like, Jordan was like, how many more pages are there? And we were like, don't worry about it. Like, it doesn't matter. It's fine. You don't need to know. Not many. <laughs> oh, so another question came in. Um, where did Maggie turn? Oh. Okay, they they asked the same question. Um, and they're wondering if there were any fellow Globetrotters uh, who kind of weighed in, but I'm I'm thinking the answer to that is no. While I was writing? No. I mean, I did have, so my brother just retired from the Air Force um, last year and he hadn't flown for a while, but early in his career, he was a C-130 pilot, which is the same, Ford propeller cargo plane I wrote in to Greenland. Um, so he and I talked through like right when I was getting started, he helped me choose what kind of plane Marion would fly. Um, he suggested the C-47 or the DC-3 because, you know, 10,000 were manufactured during World War II. So there would have been surplus ones you could buy for cheap and it was really rugged, could be flown by a very small crew, could be modified to land on snow and ice. Um, and he helped me pick her route around the world. There were really only two possibilities. Um, and then when I wrote some of the more technical flying sections, I would often send them to him and just be like, does this ring true? You know, do, does anything jump out at you? And it, sometimes things did, but it would just be him sort of saying, you know, I don't know anything about World War One aerial combat, so double check this. And, and so I would, um, but that was that was really helpful. And, and he was also a bit of an influence in that I had the way Marion 
knows she has to be a pilot was sort of what he was like as a child, as obsessed with airplanes, could identify what kind they were just flying over. So, yeah. And so did you feel that way? I love that part of the book, by the way, because when I was little, I always knew I was going to be an author. It was just mm. like, not, not a question. It was like, that's, mm-hmm. that's what I'm going to be. And um, it, you know, it took a while uh, for that to happen, but I, I always had that sense inside. So when you went off to Harvard, did you have a little sense inside, like, you know, author is, is what's going to come out of this? No, not at all. Um, I was always a reader, a really voracious reader as a child. Um, and I, when I got to Harvard, I thought I would be an anthropology major. And I took one sort of social anthro and I was like, what do you mean I can't judge people? <laughs> this isn't going to work. Um, and so, yeah, when I looked through the course catalog, what appealed to me was was English. And so I, I, I think I thought I would be an academic probably. Um, I took a creative writing class my sophomore year with Lance Samantha Chang, who's now been the director at Iowa for a long time. And then I took one my junior year with Zadie Smith, um, which I always say was sort of um, a game changer, partly because you had to apply for it. And she was like 30. I think her second book was out. She'd never taught before. She thought the whole concept of teaching was stupid, although she's now taught for a long time. Um, but So I, I applied. And then the day they were posting the class list, I went to her office and I looked at the list and I wasn't on it. And I was like, oh, well, you know, it's worth a shot. I must like this writing thing's not for me. Um, and then later somebody was like, oh, congratulations on getting into Zadie's workshop and I realized I'd been looking at the wrong list. She was also teaching a criticism class. And I think if that person hadn't told me I was in the class, I might have just not thought about it anymore. But so I took her class and she was very tough love. I found that I really enjoyed it. Um, And I wrote a creative thesis of short stories, but I still didn't think it just didn't seem viable to be an author. I wasn't sure, you know, the thought of writing a novel seemed weird. Um, so really it wasn't until I got to Iowa that it seemed like something I could maybe do, but even then, you know, and for me, I think, you know, a lot of people are like you and, and just know, and I think that's helpful for me. I think it was helpful to sort of be like, I'm trying this on because I I didn't feel like I had to live up to this dream of it. I was just sort of doing it because they were giving me, they were telling me what to do for two years and giving me funding. Great. Now, somebody's asking, and this is going to be one of my questions too. You have written short stories and novel, um, and then, it, you know, an epic. Um, which do you find is more difficult? Um, and what do you see are the, the differences? Because I, I could never write a short story. Um, well, I did write Ooh, one, but yeah. it really wasn't good. So. <laughs> <laughs> short stories are so hard. I mean, they're both difficult for different really reasons. Hard. Like short story is so unforgiving. You know, it has, everything has to have its place. It's kind of like living on a boat or something, writing a short story. And it has to be sort of incisive and gem-like um, with this, this incredible efficiency. Um, although people, of course, write short stories in all different ways. And you can find a meaningful five-page short story you can have a 50 page short story but I don't know I like the the sort of spaciousness of novels I think it's a much more forgiving genre um but what's so much harder is that it's a huge commitment and it just requires so much stamina um whereas a short story I mean like looking at my collection there are different voices and and um sort of 
structural approaches that I couldn't sustain for the length of a novel, but I could, I could try it and it would be, you know, it might be a couple of stories I just sort of tossed off in a few days and others I would struggle with for months, you know, different experience each time. Um, but none of them took me seven years. Um, <laughs> whereas just, just continuing to plug away at a novel and as it grows and grows and grows and, and you know, you have to sort of continue to wrangle it. That's, that's the hard part. And it's hard to make, a plot that hangs together and it's hard to make characters be consistent over over a long period so it's all hard it's all hard do you ever have any trouble um <laughs> with continuity in terms of um not only the timeline of things that are happening but also like what your characters are wearing because i'll have my character put on a cardigan and then something will happen and five pages later she'll put on a cardigan and then something will happen, <laughs> and then and then she'll put on another one, and uh, you know my agent always catches it. But do you ever find yourself like that? Because you know, a hundred pages ago, something happened that you know ha has to jive a hundred pages later. Mm -hmm. Oh, for sure. Um, yeah, and just from draft to draft, there are always these little vestigial things that can be hard to catch because your brain is still holding that earlier draft where like there was a coffee table there <laughs> and you'd mentioned it, you know, and then you took it out in the next draft, but your brain still knows there's maybe a coffee table. And so it shows up eight pages later. And then, yeah, I mean, stuff like that is so inevitable. So I'm so dependent, like my, my editor doesn't really just silly her hands with these sorts of things. But then once <laughs> I go into copy edits, copy editing. Changes, I mean, and, and did, proofing did they their finding mistakes till the end. Did they make a timeline for you? They must have. I didn't yeah, see have. it, but they catch, you know, like when the characters were born. Cause I'll, that's another thing I'll, when I start, I, I choose when characters are born to the day, but then I'll have to shift it around as, as I need it to accommodate the plot. But then I don't change it everywhere for the same reason as that like phantom coffee table. And so I think the copy <laughs> editors know <laughs> to double check you know, every little thing like that and, and, and proofing as well. But, I, you know, things can still sneak by. Everyone's, you know, you reading is still such sort of a mysterious process, what it's doing in your brain. And, and when you're really in the flow of it, you're not necessarily being as critical. Um, Absolutely. Did you get any um, comments from um, readers of historical fiction? Because I've got friends who write historical fiction and they say the readers will contact them and go, you know, there wasn't a snap in that era. And, you know, yeah, not much. I was very careful and I'm a really pedantic reader. Um, so I'm aware of the, the sort of that they're out there. And so I did really, really check. I got like one sort of you know, plus I don't put my email address online so people can't really contact me. They, they have to email my agents who then will forward it to me maybe. Um, and I got one really long one that identified some small mistakes, but then also was sort of like, just so you know, ICE isn't always white. And I was just like, I've seen ICE, you know, I don't say yes. it's white. I've like, seen a cotton get out of my business. Yeah, like, go no <laughs> so we have time for a few final questions here um one um from a reader um was there intention intentionality um to how marion sections are in the third person and hadley's are in the first i really grappled with that um 
with my other two books, because they both started as short stories, I had the voice established from the beginning and the idea for the book was sort of wrapped up in the voice. Um, I always knew Hadley would be first person. Uh, with Marion's, I, I, I had some days early on where I would just be consumed by anxiety where I was like, should it be present tense or past tense? Should it be first person? And I had tried, I tried at one point really early to write her logbook in first person and also make it interstitial um, instead of just as I did having tiny snippets from it and then writing, writing her flight in the same sort of borderline omniscient narration as I used throughout. So um, it was intentional. I did think about it. I couldn't, I probably couldn't explain why I settled on it as it is, except I think third person past does give you the most scope and the most flexibility, which I knew pretty early on I really needed mm -hmm. um, moving between characters and then also to this point of omniscience. Whereas Hadley, I mean, part of her role in the book was was to be this sort of almost claustrophobically intense first person voice. Um, and that and also gave me- to dif differentiate too. I mean- Yeah. Yeah, and when we were when we were making it shorter, you know, some things came up on the chopping block right away, which was like, do we need these incomplete histories? Do we need Hadley? And I always said I just didn't want it to be this sort of solid loaf of a book. I wanted it to have more um, texture and variation, and and so then I that was what meant that I had to do the smaller cuts and and do more of them. So readers are wondering um, what you're reading now, if anything. And uh, and I say, if anything, because I never read when I'm writing and I know you're writing mm. right now. Mm -hmm. um, and what? who are some of your favorite authors? The favorite authors thing is always so hard. I, you know, I tend to like individual books um, more than authors. Although if I love a book, I will always read that author's work. I am reading now. Um, I'm reading uh, a memoir called Notes on a Silencing. Ooh. from a few years ago and it's by a woman who was sexually assaulted when she was a student at St. Paul's, the boarding school. And it's incredibly, um, uh, it's beautiful writing, but it's also just incredibly intelligent the way she sort of is piecing together her life and, and sort of puzzling through why what happened to her did and, and why the response to it was the way it was. It's, it's, you know, a heavy subject, but it's not necessarily a heavy read and I'm super impressed by it. Um, and then I always have like a whole stack of novels going as well. Um, some of my favorite books, um, I'm looking at my bookshelves. Uh, lots of the ones I've been talking up, um, lately are just books that I, I would go back to while I was writing this book because they had something I could, you know, draw from. So like Life After Life by Kate Atkinson, oh. Tale for the Time Being by Ruth Ozeki, The Luminaries, Eleanor Catton, um, Signature of All Things by Elizabeth Gilbert, which I feel like is this sort of overlooked, really great book. Um, State of Wonder, Ann Patchett. Um, yeah, just lots of Lots of a whole lot books, of, but yeah, a whole lot of women authors there. I read a lot of women authors. Yeah, so. I do read. I sometimes I deign to read male authors. I did love. <laughs> I've never been a. I've never been a Franz in person, but his new book Crossroads I thought was amazing. I really loved that book. I have not read that one. That's good. Now, um, one of the last questions because I see we're coming up on time here, but. Um, so tell me about the Today Show. 
how did that come about? Did you like Jenna? Did you meet everybody? Um, how did that, and how did it feel to have your book cover on a billboard in Times Square? <laughs> um, so I, I did it remotely. I didn't oh, get to okay. go. Um, yeah, it oh, was, yeah, it was 2021. It was so who was going? May 2021. Yeah, I mean, I knew about it really far in advance. It was another thing where I woke up to an email, excited emails from people at Kanaf. Um, I think in like, November uh, 2020, knew that was coming. Um, did they send was, it you to know, Jenna, or did Jenna just mm -hmm. find it? Or no, yeah, there's definitely a pipeline. You know, they sort of put books up, and they hmm. may or may not um, take them, but um yeah it was thrilling it was um amazing to know so far in advance that it would get that boost because you you know as you all know it's just, the worst is like the month before a book comes out oh, you can't it, it's out of your control no you're just laying you in a ball do anything. you're just laying in a ball yeah. that's all you're doing maybe watching law and order yeah. but that's that's yeah. about it yeah and, you know <laughs> just the life of a book is so impossible to predict and so out of your control and uh, it's rough but yeah it was fun so I was on it um it was kind of weird it was it was really early in the morning and I was just on my computer and so I was watching the Today Show I could just see the feed that everyone else could and the producer would come in my ear and be like okay well you know 30 seconds or whatever but then when I was on I was looking at my computer and I saw Hoda and Jenna who were looking up at a screen that my face was on so I was also looking at myself Oh it was my really, gosh. really weird. Yeah. And that you know, must have been disorienting. People. And plus, you really know, strange. like nerve wracking a little bit, you know? Oh, yeah. Because you just, you don't want to sort of say something dumb on <laughs> the Today Show. <laughs> just feels very possible in the moment. Um, but yeah, she was great. I really, I really appreciate what she does for, for books and reading. And yeah, really cool. Awesome. Well, um, I think that's all the time we have. Thank you again for um, that's what I said. And I really so I need to read, it. Uh, oh, it was so much fun. I loved having this so with you. You're awesome. Um, thank you everybody for coming and have a great night. Bye. Bye. Bye, Maggie. This is great. That wraps up our Dakota County Library event with Maggie Shipstead. Make sure to catch our next Club Book podcast with Jason Mott. Jason Mott is the pen behind Hell of a Book, winner of the 2021 National Book Award for Fiction, and the July 2021 featured title for the Today Show's popular Read with Jenna Book Club. Mott's prior novels include The Returned, basis for the ABC Studios drama Resurrection. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. Stay up to date with all of our events at our Club Book Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle clubbookmn. And if you enjoy these free Club Book events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to all those who make Club Book possible, including Melsa, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include MinPost and Red Balloon Bookshop, where you can purchase all the books featured in Club Book. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.